Well, good evening, and thank you once again for being out at Community. I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles this evening and turn to the book of Galatians, chapter number 6. Galatians, chapter 6. You find that place in God's Word. We'll read from the latter portion of the chapter. Let me begin reading at verse number 11, and we'll just read down through the ends. That's not a lot of verses. Galatians chapter 6, verse number 11. See what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now on, let, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body, body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And would you join me? Let's pray together and we'll ask God's blessing. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have tonight to come and assemble once again at Community. And thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And thank you for each one who's here this evening. Thank you for those that found it possible as well to join us online who couldn't otherwise be here. And Father, thank you for a church that puts a premium on the Word of God. We pray that as we look into it now, that you will bless our hearts, that you will just take away from us all the cares and concerns, some of which are relevant and important, but not anything that we can really deal with now, and not so much your will for us now, because we know you have brought us together to this place in order that we might give attention to reading. And then as we have read the Word of God, now to preach the Word, to be instant in season, out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, knowing that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And so, Father, thank you that we have this book. We pray that you will open our hearts tonight, and I pray that you will open my lips and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, these things I pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, you can tell this is not Second Thessalonians, but in favor of communion... We want to look tonight at something that will help especially to prepare our hearts for our time gathered around the Lord's table. So I want to bring you a message tonight that I've entitled, The Cross of Our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's just something about this verse. I don't know if you've noticed it before, but so often when you study the Bible, not that all of it's not inspired and not that all of it's not profitable. Certainly, certainly we know that that is true. But sometimes you happen upon a verse and you just have a sense that that verse is full, it's powerful, it's, it's just pregnant with meaning. And sometimes you can grasp what that is on a first reading or perhaps a second. Other times, I don't know about you, but you, you, it's almost as if you spend a lifetime thinking about a verse and meditating on a verse, knowing that it has so much food for the soul, knowing that it has so much to offer and feeling so limited and so handicapped, really, to understand or even to present it. And such is the case with our text verse tonight, which is verse number 14. Let me read that again for you, if I may. But far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, you can sense that this is that type of verse. There's just a lot here. And the verse just sort of exudes that. However, there is a little clue. And if you're not careful, you might miss this. But I'd like to point this out to you tonight because you have in this verse Paul using the fullest expression that we have anywhere in the New Testament and, for that matter, anywhere in the Bible for the cross. And he refers to it, if you look at your text, as the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know, you can just do a, a simple statistical study and verify this, but I think this will, this will resonate with you right away. Almost always, when you come to the New Testament, when you want to refer to the cross, that's exactly how you refer to it as the cross. Those simple two words. And of the occurrences that we have in the New Testament, that's by far and away the majority, 18 of them, that's 14 there. So 14 out of 18. Three times, and again, they are in Paul. These particular three are in Paul. He talks about the cross of Christ. So that's a bit fuller. But boy, when you come to this particular verse, you have Paul using the fullest expression that he uses anywhere in the, in the New Testament for the cross. And so you can tell by this that Paul is speaking reverentially. He's speaking devotionally. He's speaking adoringly. It's not too strong to say that this verse pours out Paul's adoration for the cross, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, in many respects, once you start thinking in this way, in many respects, this should not surprise us for the simple reason that this happens to occur in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And what do we know about Paul's letter to the Galatians? Not time tonight for a, a complete overview or study of that, but just to take advantage of what I'm sure you know to be true about Galatians, this is where Paul is defending the cross against those that we typically refer to as the Judaizers. Now, who are those people? Well, basically, those were the people who said the cross was not sufficient. And that absolutely runs at loggerheads to everything that the Bible teaches and certainly everything that Paul preached. Because for Paul, it was always, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it's that plus nothing and that minus nothing. So when Paul is defending against the Judaizers, they were trying to somehow find the middle ground. So on the hard side this way, you've got the strict Jews who, who just, their whole thing was the keeping of the law, the keeping of the law, the keeping of the law, which God never intended, but that's kind of what it had morphed into for them, the keeping of the law. And this is they have a zeal, Paul said. They're going about to establish their own righteousness and they're ignorant of God's righteousness because they think that the righteousness of God is attained by the keeping of the law. That's what you have on the one extreme. I hate to refer this to an extreme, but on the other side of it, you have the Christian teaching that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You don't add to that. You don't subtract to that. The Judaizers were looking for a middle ground, and so to this they added circumcision, We'll just make it simple that way and think of circumcision. And Paul continually refers to them as the circumcision. Folks, you know, this problem is still with us because I've said before, the devil really doesn't have anything new. You call them the Judaizers in that day and in this day, you can call them something else. But there are, there are still people around who think that somehow we begin with grace and then somehow we continue with grace plus works or we have to start with grace plus works. You have to do something to earn your salvation. It's not enough just to leave it with the cross. When Paul thought about that, I mean, if you think back in your mind to Galatians chapter 1, he started writing this epistle. He referred to that as another gospel. You remember. 
And he said, But though I or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which I have preached unto you, let him be accursed. This is Paul's attitude. So you can tell his emotions are stirred in this letter. He's defending the cross against those who would add something to it. And so that's the context, broadly speaking. But then when you come to this closing set of verses in the book, you're coming right to the very end. So the, the, his argumentation and everything that he's had to say in defense of the cross reaches its apex. It comes to its fullest, and it's in that context that he, as I say, reverentially, devotionally, adoringly refers to the cross as the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. My thing for you tonight, the thing for me tonight, that I want to present in this as we think about gathering around the Lord's table is that if we would have that same reverence, if we would have that same devotion, if we would have that same adoration for the cross, then what he tells us in this text is exactly how we have to relate to the cross. And I think there are three things that we can look at here tonight. So first of all, I'd like you to notice with me that we have in this verse a statement of condemnation, not commendation. That's when you're saying something good about somebody. Condemnation. That's when all you have to say is bad. Well, think about this, what you know about the cross. I mean, Rome was not accustomed to hanging people on crosses that they desired to commend. Rome put people on crosses that they condemned. And when Rome did that, they had chosen the cross as not only an excruciating form of public condemnation and punishment, but one of extreme humiliation. And so you think about condemnation. We know that this is what is taking place on the cross. Condemned criminals. All we have to do is think about the the crucifixion of Christ. And we think about Jesus himself, and we think about what Paul had to say about it. It said he, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Not just any death, even the death of the cross. The most ignominious, shameful death that you can imagine. That's the death that Jesus died on my behalf and on yours, because That's what the cross represented. It was a place of condemnation. Now, if you think about this, in the broader context of the Bible, sin brings condemnation. And from the very beginning of the Bible, God has been shouting this out, shouting this out, shouting this out. Sin brings condemnation. Disobedience to God, what we call sin, it brings punishment. It brings judgment. It brings condemnation. So just go with me in your mind's eye to Genesis chapter 2. There's the first man. There's the first couple, the first woman. They're there in the garden, and God said, Of all the trees thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And in that moment, God set the terms. Obedience, righteousness. Disobedience, unrighteousness, and condemnation. They chose to disobey God for As by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one many were made righteous. Wherefore, as you know, as by one man's sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And condemnation came into this world. Sin brings condemnation, and God shouts this out constantly in the Word of God. Right there in the garden, we have reference to that. Then, if you think about every Jewish sacrifice, just think about this, every single one of them where an animal died violently as a symbol of sacrifice for sin. This is God shouting out that sin brings condemnation. An innocent animal dies bearing 
in a figurative sense, as if they were imputed to that animal, someone else's sins, and blood is shed because without the shedding of blood is no forgiveness, is no remission of sin. Lots of places in the Bible tell us this. I think of what Ezekiel had to say when he said in chapter 19, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And then we come to the New Testament, and everybody knows this because everybody's memorized this verse. When Paul talks about the wages of sin is death. Well, don't you love the way the Bible can be so practical in the illustrations that it uses? Because wages, I mean, most people understand that, right? If you, On the positive side, wages are these. If you work for someone, then the reward, the reward for what you get is your wage. And you look forward, everybody looks forward to payday, right? And, you know, it's changed a lot now, and a lot of times it just appears as if by magic in your bank account. And it's, it's almost a little bit unnerving when the government can make it appear by magic in your bank account. I suppose if they have the power to make it appear by magic in your bank account, they can also make it disappear. That's even more unnerving. But at least when we think about payday and we think about the, the work that we've done in the week prior or the two weeks prior or the month prior, we understand this is what we deserve. This is our reward for what we've done. God says the wages of sin is death. This is the negative side of it where this is what we deserve for what we have done, but what we have done is wrong. It's bad. Sin brings condemnation. So accordingly, when you think about the cross, the cross is a place of disgrace. Now, the verses that you have there, if we turn back a page, because we're going to to see how Paul handles this within the context of the the book of Galatians. In the broader scriptures, I know we know this, but just go back to chapter 3 and verse 10 for a moment, because He says something interesting there. You don't have to worry about the Deuteronomy verse. I just simply provide the reference there for you because this is what he's quoting when he, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. This is condemnation. For it is written, and this is your Deuteronomy reference, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Is there anyone here tonight who really thinks He can be possessed of the righteousness of the law. The curse is pronounced not on people who keep it 50%. The curse is, or the righteousness comes not on people who keep it 50%, but on people who keep it 100%. That's not anyone in this room tonight, is it? I don't think anyone in here thinks that tonight. I sure hope not. But this is what Paul is telling us, though. It was a place of disgrace. And so many of our hymns, beloved, it's just really amazing to see how so many of our hymns, when we think about Christ on that cross, so many of our hymns capture this. You just think about, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross, where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Or you think about, hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Uh, so, Matt, so much of our Christian hymnody captures, captures this very point that we have here tonight, that Christ hung in my stead there in disgrace. But, you know, as we continue with this, we find out that it's also a place of grace. And this is the real blessing. If we just move forward in Galatians chapter 3, now we look at verse number 13 and look at what it says here. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, and here's your Deuteronomy quotation again, 
Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Well, you go back in the Old Testament, you find this, that God said that. And they were not permitted to leave them on the tree past the sundown. They took them down. And God pronounced that as a curse. And you come over into the New Testament and find that fulfilled in the cross of Christ. It's no mistake, beloved, and I throw this out because it's kind of interesting. It's not my message tonight. But it's not by mistake that you have a number of New Testament references to the cross as a tree. Because the Old Testament says this, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Well, you know, you can summarize everything about the story of redemption, which is what the Bible is all about, in three trees. Three trees that you find in the Bible. You meet up with the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. You meet up with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. After those references in the early chapters of Genesis, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil drops from the pages of the Bible never to be seen again. When we come to the Gospels, we find the remedy to this problem, and it's the tree called Calvary. It's Calvary's tree. And then when you come to the book of the Revelation, how interesting it is to find that the tree of life pops up again. And why is that possible? It's because of the middle one. It's because of the tree on which Jesus died, in which he redeemed us from the curse of the law. I'm a great fan of the doctrinal words of the Bible, and I, I'm all for people being able to understand the Bible. I'm all for a good, conservative, modern language translation of the Bible. But, you know, I just never care much for the ones that try to dumb things down so much that they jettison all the good doctrinal words. That We need to know what these doctrines are, and not only do we need to know what they are, we need to teach our children what they are, And again, you come back to some of the simplicity of Bible illustration by understanding them because Christ is a redeemer. Christ redeemed us. This is what this verse says from the curse of the law. Well, you know about redemption, right? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, that's a theme really through the Old Testament, but as we come to the New Testament and the, the era in which Paul lived, you have the easiest illustration of that and what was, what was common in that day was slavery. Bad thing to talk about now, politically incorrect, all that kind of thing, but we do at least understand the illustration. And so, how would you rescue a slave from his bondage? You'd have to pay the price. You'd have to buy that freedom for that slave. You know, I've always loved the story that is told about a minister that served in the Boston area. This is a number of years ago. And one day, he went into the front of the church. He was walking through, and this little boy came into the church. He don't really know how the the boy came to come to be in the church, but the preacher saw him, and he noticed the boy had a, kind of an old rusty cage, and in the cage he noticed two birds. So he said to the boy, he said, uh, son, he said, uh, where'd you get those birds? The boy said, oh, he said, uh, these birds ain't no good. He said, I, I just caught them in the field. He said, well, what are you going to do with them? He said, oh, I don't know. He said, I think I'll just play with them some and have some fun, and, and I'll just take them on home after that and feed them to the cat. Well, the preacher said, well, let me ask you this. He said, could I buy them from you? He said, oh, preacher, he said, you don't want these birds. He said, these birds ain't no good. He said, they can't even sing. They just feel birds. The preacher reached in his pocket and took out two Silver dollars. He said, would you take two dollars for the cage and the birds? The boy said, preacher, you don't want to buy these birds. You're getting a bad deal. But the minister persisted, so the boy gave him the cage, took the coins, and gleefully he 
went right on out of the church, two silver dollars. As soon as he was gone, the minister went out the back of the church into a field behind the church, opened the rusty door on the cage and let the birds soar to regain their freedom. The next Sunday, he took the cage to the pulpit and preached on redemption. That's what it is. Christ paying the cross for just worthless. We can't even sing. I can't anyway. I can just make a joyful noise, and I like to do that, but you might not like for me to do that if I sit too close to you. We're just worthless sinners. We're just lost, hell-bent sinners who are without hope and without God in the world. And there's no sense in putting on any pretense or airs. That's all we are. Except that the cross is a place of grace. You can understand, this is the heart of the gospel, beloved. This is what Paul told the Corinthians when he wrote to them. He said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, by which also you are saved, and wherein ye stand. How that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. There it is. It's the, it's the heart and soul of the gospel. And if you really want to understand it, you have to look no further, really, than the cross, themsel- the cross itself, because you remember that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. We can just call one of them the penitent and the other the impenitent. But, you know, if you, you have to look, look at the Scriptures carefully to catch this, but if you read what Matthew has to say about it, in the early stages of the crucifixion, both those men, both those men were of the same mind. They were of the same disposition. They both, the Bible says, railed on Jesus. They had a hardened attitude, and they railed on him. But, you know, something about the passage of time and something about the sweet influences of grace and the power of the Holy Spirit began to come over that one man. And his compatriot, the Bible tells us now in Luke's account of things, railed on Jesus again and say, look, since you're the Christ, why don't you save us? This was kind of thrown out in a kind of an irreverent, insolent type of a of, of a of a tone. And you remember now, something's changed. Something's come over this other man. He says, don't you fear God? Seeing that we're in the same condemnation. Condemnation. We're in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, but this man has done nothing amiss. Then he turned to Jesus, and he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom." You remember what Jesus said back to him? Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Now I ask you, beloved, could salvation be any simpler? Nowhere to go. Nothing you can do. You're nailed to a cross. No, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. How could salvation have been more quicker? Not tomorrow in the kingdom. His prayer was, remember me when thou comest into the kingdom. Jesus said, today, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. How does all of that work? How could all of that come about? Well, it's because of the second thing that we're going to look at. Because when Paul is speaking in this verse, Galatians 6.14, and talking about the cross, you also have here this second thought, the power of transformation. How do we see the power of transformation? Well, Paul says here, by which, he first of all mentions the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then look at your text again. 
He says, by which the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Now, this might catch you as a little odd at first, but this is the place where if you think about this for a moment, you see that there are three crosses here, but really only one. Unless you think that I've ventured too far out on a limb and someone's going to cut it off with a theological saw, I'll just tell you that I'm in pretty good company with what I'm telling you tonight. Yeah. I don't know how long ago, really, but I guess years, I was doing research on this verse. This verse has always had a bit of an allure to me. And I stumble across the fact that Spurgeon preached a sermon on this, on this text, Galatians 6.14. You know what the title is? Three Crosses. I haven't read the whole sermon. I've just glazed over it enough to see what he was talking about. But there are three crosses here. And, of course, the obvious one is the cross upon which Jesus died. We've just spent the first part of the message talking about that. But then, as you move along, you have the cross upon which Paul is crucified to the world. He says, by which the world is crucified unto me. And then you have, and thirdly, the cross upon which Paul is crucified to the world. Now, have I got you all confused? (laughs) Well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. But just think about it for a moment. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the first one. That's the cross upon which Jesus died. By which the world is crucified unto me. That's number two. And I unto the world, that's number three. Or we could put this a different way. We could say, when Paul looked at the world, it was as if Paul saw the world on a cross. Paul saw the world. The, The cross was an instrument of death. So Paul saw the world as dead to him. That is to say that the world, all of its power, all of its allure, all of its glitter was for Paul gone. And really the same thing was true in reverse. That when the world looked at Paul, it it saw him as on a cross, that is, dead to it. But you think about Paul, that luminary in Judaism, brought up at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, and that rising star, that persecuted the church, gaining favor and recognition with the, with the high priest. And what happened to Paul? He, he was possessed with all of this notion that Jesus was an imposter, that Jesus was on the cross because he deserved to be on the cross. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. That was Jewish thinking. He deserved to be there because he claimed to be the Messiah, and he was not. And God struck him down on the road to Damascus. And the cross is like a dividing point in all of time in our lives because before the cross, it's one way, and after the cross, it's another way entirely. We could put it this way. We could say that once a sinner experiences the power of the cross, we sang about that a moment ago, once a sinner experiences the power of the cross, it's as if, and this is the way I... I think about this in my own life. It's as if the world is ruined for us anymore. And we are ruined for the world. You don't believe that? If you're here tonight and you've truly met Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you try to go back into the world and see if it brings you any joy. It was illusory in the first place that you thought you found joy there at all. But if, as a Christian, you try going back there, you will find that somehow a bridge has been burned. You can try and go back there. 
but you'll be like Lot, sitting in Sodom, vexed, the Bible says, vexed his righteous soul with the deeds of the wicked. It just won't be the same. You've been ruined for the world, and the world has been ruined for you, and what has done that is the power of the cross. And Paul makes it abundantly clear that this is what he's talking about in our text, and our version translates it this way. Do you have the perfect tense here in the original where it says, by which the world, notice, has been crucified unto me. So we're talking about an event that takes place in the past. We're talking about when Paul met Christ on the road to Damascus. Not not talking about another concept in Paul's theology where he said, like in Romans chapter 6, reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, which is something we have to do every day. Or as he told to the, the Corinthians, I die daily. He's not talking about that. He's talking about that experience that he had at the cross by which the world has been crucified unto me. Something that took place in the past and its events are epical. They continue down to this present day in his life. And I unto the world. This is the power of the cross. This may help us if we go back. If we go back to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, then we can begin to see where Paul has hinted at this earlier. And this is a verse that a lot of people have committed to memory, but it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Come back to our text and you'll find that Paul has actually now said this. He has actually said exactly what we're talking about in the following verse, because in verse 15 he says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but what? A new creation. When does it happen that we become new creatures in Christ? When we are born again. When we meet him at the cross. This is the power of the cross. This is the power of transformation. It changes lives so that we are not the person we once were. Well, thank God for that. wish there were more time to tell you some things to help illustrate this a little bit more, but I fear we, we better not tarry on this. So we move along, and we look at the third thing that I think you have to see in this verse if you're going to really capture the reverence and the devotion and adoration that Paul has for the cross, and that is to see that it's the only ground of exaltation. All this is context. There's been boasting going on. Paul's talking about boasting. Paul's talking about the Judaizers. He's talking about they just want you to be circumcised so that they can boast, so that they can glory in your flesh. What a sinister thought that is. Misery loves company, I guess they say, right? And I suppose that's what it is, really. When you you get somebody under the same system of bondage that you're under so that you can rejoice and gloat in the fact that they don't keep the law either. Well, (laughs) that's... That's not the kind of company that I want to be in because those that's the lost crowd. But there was a time when Paul was exactly like those Judaizers. He says in this verse, he says, but God forbid or far be it for me that I should boast. In what then does Paul boast if he boasts in anything any longer? Well, there was a time when he was just like these Judaizers. There was a time when he boasted about the things of this world There was a time when he gloried in his religious accomplishment and in the flesh. 
I want to take you to Philippians chapter 3, and just as, as quickly as we can, I want, you to read a, I want to read a couple of verses to you here, because it's not often that Paul pulls back the veil for us to catch a little bit of a glimpse of what, he, what the past was and what he says about this. But boy, you really have a, a passage of it here in Philippians chapter 3, where he says, Though I myself have reason, this is verse 4, for confidence in the flesh... Also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisees, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, righteousness under the law, blameless. That was, a, that was one day. Not now. Not anymore. But he says, what was gain for me? Indeed, I count everything, but what, whatever, verse 7, was gain, I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may, be, that I may gain Christ. You, you begin to see this now. By whom the world is crucified unto me. There was once a time when those things had a power in Paul's life. They had an allure. They had an attraction. He was doing everything he could to rise as high as he could in the ranks of religious accomplishment and in Judaism till Jesus Christ struck him down on the cross and then he looked at that and he said, that's a pile of rubbish. If I glory now, I glory in the cross because Paul recognized in that a fountain of cleansing and the fullness of God's grace. As he wrote to the Corinthian church, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. And once again, it's astonishing how, maybe it's not astonishing, but it's wonderful, better choice of words perhaps, how our hymnody picks this up. I think my favorite to the whole thing really is this hymn that we sung tonight. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. If there's anything to boast about, beloved, it's the cross. And do you know, we're getting ready to go into communion, and that's exactly what we're going to be doing. It's a shout-out, really. It's a celebration. It's to glory in the cross. To look at that, well, we just have that little disc, but to look at that and think about his body broken for me. To look at that juice and to think about his blood shed for me. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Father, help us and bless us tonight as we come now to the time of looking into your the table, these elements that represent to us the things that we've tried to talk about tonight. Lord, please just magnify in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives the cross of Christ tonight. I pray in Jesus' name.